space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Captain's Log, Stardate 3514.9, Planet Argelius 2. While on therapeutic shore leave, Mr. Scott has fallen under suspicion of having brutally murdered an Argillian woman. The chief city administrator, Mr. Hengist, has taken charge of the investigation, but has learned little of value. Mr. Hengist is not a native Argillian, but rather is from Rigel IV. He confesses that he is speechless about the incident because Argelius is the last place in the galaxy one would associate with such a violent crime as this. Mr. Scott is unable to remember what happened, except he and the victim were walking through the fog. He heard her scream and turned around to find her dead. He was holding a bloody knife. As Lieutenant Karen Tracy is preparing a psycho-tricorder scan of Mr. Scott in another room... We hear a scream. We run toward it and find her dead from multiple stab wounds. Once again, Mr. Scott is standing nearby holding a bloody knife. Resuming the investigation, the prefect's wife, Saibo, goes into a trance. She feels a terrible presence, a hater of all life, of all women. It is called by many names, including Red Jack. Again, the lights go off. And when they come on again, Saibo is dead, a knife in her back, and Mr. Scott is next to her, his hands covered in her blood. We return to the Enterprise and play Saibo's words through the computer. The computer identifies Red Jack as a pseudonym for Jack the Ripper. It must be, Dr. McCoy says, a non-human entity that feeds on fear. The entity possesses humanoid life forms and spreads terror wherever it goes. It is now in possession of Mr. Hengist. Then the entity leaves his body and moves to the Enterprise's computer, threatening to cut off all life support. Mr. Spock orders the computer to compute pi to the last digit, thus forcing the entity out of the computer and back into Mr. Hengist. Spock tranquilizes Hengist, and I put him into the transporter and beam him into space at maximum dispersion, spreading his billions of harmless atoms forever throughout the cold vacuum of space. The mystery of Jack the Ripper, it appears, is finally solved. Or is it? If you haven't already done so, order one of these delicious cocktails. Perhaps even the Ripper and get ready to play detective as we travel back in time to foggy, dreary London and try to solve the mystery of Jack the Ripper. Today, Whitechapel in East London is a growing, working-class community. But 140 years ago, in the late 1880s, 
it was the prototype of Dickensian London. Overcrowded slums and filthy, dangerous tenements. Raw sewage ran through the streets. The population swelled to 80,000, with recent immigrants from Ireland and Russia and Eastern Europe making up the majority of the population. By their very backgrounds and religion, they were excluded from English life. The filth was a breeding ground for disease. Tuberculosis ran rampant, and 55% of children died before the age of five. In order to survive, many women, abandoned by their families and without connections or education, turned to sex work. In October of 1888, the Metropolitan Police estimated that there were 1,200 female sex workers in Whitechapel with 62 brothels. Crime ran rampant in the squalid streets, and from 1888 through 1891, terror gripped the poor residents of White Castle and drew the nation's attention to this Gilded Age slum. Eleven women were brutally murdered during this time, and those murders remain unsolved to this day. And thanks to press coverage, some or all of them may have been committed by the same man, Jack the Ripper. Five of those murders were definitely tied to the Ripper, and they occurred between August and November in 1888. Marianne Nichols was 43 years old. She was married and had five children, but her husband abandoned her and took four of them with him. He was supposed to make monthly payments to her, but he stopped when he learned that she was earning money as a sex worker. By 1888, she had accumulated a lengthy arrest record for drunkenness, petty theft, and prostitution. Early that year, a social worker helped her find a job as a domestic servant, but within three months, she either quit or was fired. On the last morning of her life, at about 2.30 a.m., a woman saw her slumped against a wall of a grocery store, passed out. An hour later, a carman found her body in front of a gated entrance. She had been stabbed numerous times. Her throat had been cut from ear to ear and her body eviscerated. She was still warm to the touch. The police were called and moved her body to a mortuary. One week later, 47-year-old Annie Chapman was seen near the steps to a doorway of a gated backyard. She, too, was separated and had three children. That evening, a bystander saw her talking to a dark-haired man wearing a brown deerstalker hat and a dark overcoat. He heard the man ask her, Will you? She replied, Yes. An hour later, her body was discovered. Again, her throat was sliced from ear to ear, her abdomen cut open and mutilated. Elizabeth Stride, otherwise known as Long Liz, was 46 years old. She had no children. Her husband died of tuberculosis, but she told people that he was a sailor and that he drowned on board a ship along with their nine children. Like the other two, her throat had been cut, but this time 
there were no mutilations, leading some to believe that her killer may have been interrupted before he could finish the job. And she too was seen talking to a man wearing a felt hat. A man with a fair complexion was seen talking to 46-year-old Cathanettos shortly before she was killed. Her murder fit the same pattern. Her throat was slit and her abdomen cut. Some of her organs, including her kidney, were missing. But unlike the others, her face was severely mutilated. Two months later, Mary Jane Kelly, a 25-year-old sex worker, was found in her bed. Her neck had been severed almost to the spine. She, too, was completely disemboweled, her organs placed under her head like a pillow. And like Eddowes, the killer had also mutilated her face, hacking it beyond recognition. Early on, the police considered these five killings to be the work of the same person. They are known in Jack the Ripper lore as the Canonical Five. There were at least six other brutal killings in Whitechapel from 1888 to 1891, but the police believe some or all of these were committed by other people. But maybe not. But considering these five, there were some common threads. The murders were all committed at night, on or close to a weekend. The murders and mutilations became increasingly more violent, except for Stride, whose attacker may have been interrupted. The police investigations followed standard procedure at the time. They talked to witnesses. They created a profile, believing that the killer at first may have been a doctor because of the way the organs were removed, but Upon further investigation, they thought it was too crude to be the work of a medical professional, so they began to focus on butchers in the area. They talked to thousands of people. Most of them had alibis. But like other serial killers, Jack may have had a penchant for publicity. On September 25th, the Central News Agency received a letter that was postmarked two days later. It read, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I've laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. The joke about the leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them until I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with it, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so knife and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, signed, Jack the Ripper. P.S. Don't mind giving me the trade name. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. The police originally believed this to be a hoax, maybe written by a journalist. 
but the discovery of Catherine Eddowes' body and the fact that her earlobe had been severed, just as the letter said it would be, they reconsidered and felt this may have been a true letter from the murderer. A few days later, the same news agency received a postcard written in red ink, just as the letter was. I'm not cotting, old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy's Jack work tomorrow. Double event this time. She squealed a bit, and I couldn't finish it straight off. Had not time to get the ears off for the police. Thanks for keeping the last letter till I got to work again. Again signed, Jack the Ripper. There were dozens of other letters sent. Some, one even contained a kidney. But it was these two that most police officers and, and historians felt may have been truly written by the murderer. But in 1931, some 50 years after the murderer, a journalist named Fred Best of the Star claimed that he and a colleague wrote the letters just to keep the business alive and the public's interest keened. In 2018, a handwriting linguistic forensic expert found strong evidence that the postcard and the Dear Boss letter were written by the same person. There were several suspects named by the police, but no arrests were ever made. The press and popular opinion named several more. And years after the fact, historians keep coming up with new theories. So, who was Jack the Ripper? A non-corporeal entity beamed into space from the USS Enterprise? Or a butcher? A hairdresser? Maybe a member of the British royal family or nobility? A famous author? Or someone else entirely? In a little while, Macy and I will discuss some of the most famous or infamous suspects, and you'll have a chance to chime in with your opinion and your vote as we search for Jack the Ripper. Thank you, Dad. Great story, as always. Um, today, we are at Alibi, a true crime bar. And we so thank you, uh, Tara, Scott, and Ian for having us. And Dad, tell us about the cocktail that you and Scott made before before everyone got here. Well, I actually got to go behind a real bar instead of our kitchen counter, as I usually do. And uh, and Scott taught me how to make tonight's feature cocktail here at Alibi, the Catcher in the Rye. It's delicious. It's a... Uh, it has, uh, I believe, two, two and a half ounces of rye whiskey uh, and some lemon juice, uh, rosemary syrup, which he made himself. And then he smoked a glass with some hickory smoke and poured it into that glass, and it was delicious. So uh, if you haven't already ordered your cocktail, check out these menus. We They have some great cocktails here at Alibi. Uh, right now, I'm drinking the A-Train, which is their take on a, on a Manhattan. Uh, Macy, what are you drinking right now? I am drinking the El Chapo, and it's pretty spicy. So both literally and figuratively, it's really good and spicy. So. Yes, I'm seeing a jalapeno <laughs> floating on top, in fact. Yes, and it's delicious if you like spicy. 
So now we'll move on to our trends of the crime section. Normally in our episodes, this is where I will talk about the fashion that was in vogue at the time of the crime. But because we have a live audience today, I thought we would have some fun and do something a little different. So I invited some of my friends here to model some looks. And if you've been listening to our episodes, this should be easy peasy for you. If you haven't, good luck and start listening. <laughs> um, so first, uh, oh, let me explain. So my friends are each going to walk out one by one. And then you have a sheet of paper in front of you and definitely put your name on it. If you don't want to end, uh, write down the other information, that's fine. I would love if you did, but you don't have to. Uh, but guess which fashion decade each uh, lady is wearing. And if you get all four correct, you will be entered to win one of our prizes up at the table. We have a, a CCF t-shirt, a mug, and a baseball cap. And they're all really cute. And they're designed by Lucy Besh. She's on Instagram at Lucy Besh Designs, I believe. Is everyone ready? Does everyone understand the rules? Yeah. All right, cool. I have a question. Yes. So if there's a tie, you uh -huh. said we're going to have a drawing or? I'm sorry, a drawing. Yes. Thank you, Dad. Okay. So I... if you get everything right, my lovely assistant and husband, Jacob, he is going to take all of them that are correct and then pick three randomly. Yes, Jacob wanted to be a model today and, and model some of the new men's fashion, short shorts and crop tops. But Macy Macy said no for some reason. I don't understand why. I thought my friends over here were prettier than Jacob, so no offense. I love you. All right, first, <laughs> we have Molly. Come on out, Molly. She is wearing a blouse with beading, a turban headband, a beautiful necklace, and a skirt so she'll be back so you can continue studying uh now we have abby she has a super cute shift dress on some white some white boots um oh it's a romper or is it it's a dress it's a skirt but it, it looks like a shift dress that's your big hint all right she'll be back and kara Kara has on a neck scarf. This is Kara here. You've met Molly. Um, <laughs> uh, like a neckerchief. And she has some flared bottoms. Uh, yes, Kara, go ahead and walk around the whole room. Show off your look. She has some wedge sandal heels on. And last but not least, we have Tyrika. She has a plaid button down, ripped jeans, Chuck Taylors. Um, yes. And she will walk around the whole room. And then all four are going to stand here so you all can get a good look and make your guesses. But don't say them out loud because you don't want to cheat. Does everyone feel good about their guesses? Does anyone need more time? All right. Jacob's going to pick up all of your slips. And then at the end, we will give out our prizes and announce our winners. So, haha, -ha, you have to stay till the end. See if you want. <laughs> you must be present to win. Yes, must be present to win. Okay, Dad, how, what do you say about talking about these suspects now? Well, I, I, um, I think we've divided these suspects really into into three groups. There are uh, some suspects that the police actually looked at uh, back in the 1880s and 1890s. 
there were some suspects that the police didn't necessarily look at, but the newspapers identified and uh, popular opinion suggested they might have been involved. And then there's a third group of suspects that have come to light um, in more modern times, have historians have looked back at the crime and tried to piece things together. Um, so why don't... Um, well, why for, don't... first, I do want to go over the alleged appearance of the person that everyone was look that the police were looking for at the time. So the police were looking for a man who was between 25 and 35 years old, roughly five foot five foot five to five foot seven, stocky with a fair complexion and a mustache. He was seen wearing a dark overcoat and a dark hat. And he was described as, quote, perfectly sane, frighteningly normal, and yet capable of extraordinary cruelty, end quote. And this person likely had or had to have anatomical knowledge based on the nature of the murders. So they would have gotten this, um, this description from the people who saw the victims talking to someone um, most times hours before their murder. Is, is that correct? Is that where they got this description? Yes. Yes. First, I thought we could talk about the uh, the suspect, the official suspects that the that the uh, lead investigator had at the time. So, Sir Sir Melville McNaughton, he was the head of the criminal investigation department, had three official suspects. However, most people believe that Jack the Ripper was not any of these people nowadays. Um, but we'll talk about them anyway. So, uh, first we have Montague Johnson Druitt. He was a barrister who may have had an uncle or cousins who were doctors. So he was an attorney, in other words. Thank you. I didn't know what that meant, to be honest. Yes, so he, he was, was an, an attorney. He was a lawyer. So he must have done it because we all know about lawyers, right? Okay, well, I, I think this is, I think we're done. <laughs> yeah. Um, at the time of his death, Druitt may have been around the age of 40. So he's a little older than what they thought this person was. Um, he supposedly had an interest in surgery. He possibly lived with, with his cousin who was practicing medicine close to where the Whitechapel murders occurred. And a month before the first murder, Montague's mother had gone insane. Montague wrote in a note that he feared that he was also going insane. From McNaughton's notes, and McNaughton is the lead investigator, Quote, from private information, I have little doubt that his own family suspected this man of being the Whitechapel murderer. It was alleged that he was sexually insane. Montague was found dead within four weeks of the last murder. Suspicious. His body was found floating in the Thames River on December 3rd, 1988. Do you, I'm sorry, did you say 1988? 1888. Okay. <laughs> Because Thank the you. note you wrote said 1988, and I thought, my God, we're in Star Trek territory again. Um, did he commit suicide, do they think? Or was this a, I don't a know. more questionable um, death? I think it was questionable because it was just found floating. So okay. I don't think we know. Next, we have Michael Ostroke. He was a Russian doctor and a criminal. He had been in an asylum for homicidal tendencies. What do you think that means? Homicidal tendencies. You think he actually committed a homicide? He tends to. He tends. <laughs> yes. I I I think they they thought he was probably a suspect in some other homicides that the, it's the way he talked and acted. Uh he had probably made some threats to people. So um 
I think they, they decided just to play it safe and lock him up. All right. Of course, Good we can't do that today. No, we cannot. McNaughton noted that Ostro couldn't prove a strong alibi for his whereabouts during the murders. He was not convicted due to lack of evidence. So it probably wasn't him. Just giving you guys hints for the end when you vote. So he was never tri- he was never actually no. arrested, though. No. Okay. All right. Now, this suspect is interesting. Now we have Aaron Kosminski. He was a Polish and Jewish resident of Whitechapel who spent some time in an asylum in 1889 after the last murder. He would reside in asylums until his death in 1919. He was known for his hatred towards women, particularly sex workers. His appearance matched descriptions provided by the police of a man in Mitre Square, and that was the night of the double murder. Uh, His name was recently in the headlines due to him being featured in a book entitled Naming Jack the Ripper. Uh, The author of this book, Russell Edwards, claims that a shawl purchased at an auction contains DNA evidence proving Kosminski is the killer. Whoa. Uh, The shawl was bought under the impression that it was reportedly found at the crime scene on the person Catherine Eddowes. Edwards enlisted the help of Liverpool molecular biologist Yari Luhilainen. Is that how you say that? Do you think? Luhilainen. That's it. Sounds like Lagavulin scotch to me. I'm (laughs) thirsty. Do we have any scotch back there? (laughs) They believe the shawl is connected to Catherine Eddowes based off of comparison from one of her descendants. They claim that semen on the scarf is linked to relatives of Kosminski. However, the scientist may have made a critical error of nomenclature. Dun, dun, dun. Now you're going to explain that, correct? No. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Dr. Luhalainen identified a DNA mutation in both Eddowes and her relative, Karen Miller. The mutation, this is about to get really sciencey. Bear with me. The mutation was believed to be named 314.1C, a mutation found in only one out of every or out of 290,000 people, making it very likely that it was a match. So under that mutation, this was the real deal. Okay, he's Jack the Ripper. However, identification was reportedly incorrect, and the mutation was actually 315.1C which is a mutation shared by over 99% of people of European descent. <laughs> so it was him, but now it could be anybody. So Now, the other, the other thing about, about uh, Mr. Kaminsky, the DNA is that, that they found is actually what, uh, what we would call today trace DNA. And for uh, those of you who remember our John Benet Ramsey podcast, we had a similar situation there. They found some DNA. Uh, but it's actually DNA that could have come from, um, you know, some dead skin cells. So someone could have touched this scarf and their DNA shows up. Um, police had that same problem in the Ramsey case. So uh, another problem here, I think, with Kaminsky, there was never really any chain of custody documentation about this scarf. It could have been touched by hundreds of people down through the years, even even when uh, when it came uh, came to the um, to the authorities, to the forensic experts, there there was no clear chain of custody. We don't know where it was stored, 
who may have touched it. So the fact there was some trace DNA on here, uh, again, that certainly could have come from, you know, any number of journalists, police officers, scientists, um, who knows? Yeah. So it may cool not story, be as strong but, a case. Yeah. And another thing that hurts the authenticity of the case, uh, well, first, British geneticist Sir Alec Jeffries, he's like the godfather of like this stuff, the science stuff, genetics. Uh, he says, this evidence needs to be submitted to peer review. No actual evidence has yet been provided. So he didn't believe it. And Dr. Lou Halinen has yet to publish this finding in a peer-reviewed scientific journal and has refused to answer questions to news outlets. And his refusal to answer questions makes it impossible to verify his and Edwards' claims. So he doesn't even believe it. So some sloppy work. Mm -hmm. Well, what about some of the non-official suspects? Yes. Who do we have there? Now we have five non-official suspects. We have eight total for you to choose between at the end. Okay, number one, could Jack the Ripper have been Jill the Ripper? Ooh. Ooh. Some believe Jack the Ripper was a female. And the idea that all the police were searching for a man with a mustache could explain how Jack the Ripper was just slipping by under the cracks and no one ever found her, him, her, or her. What, what profession might Jill the Ripper have... Uh have been a part of she if if jack was jill she was likely a midwife because a midwife would have sufficient anatomical knowledge and blood on her clothing would not have raised any eyebrows but my thing is she would be have jill the ripper would be covered in a ton of blood i don't know if a midwife like that might be too much for a midwife but i don't know i wasn't around in 1880s well not necessarily true um uh, it appears that, that most of the victims, the first cut was, was to cut their throat, and they would bleed out. Uh, the rest of the cuts, the, the, the evisceration, the removal of the organs would have happened after uh, death had occurred, so the, there would not have been the type of spurting blood that you would expect. Okay. I but, guess it could make sense. You know, when you mentioned she may have been a midwife, I was looking over at one of the tables here where your mother is sitting, and I think you've just ruined her favorite television show called The Midwife. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. <laughs> uh, however, while this is a fun theory, all eyewitness testimony points to a man with a mustache and a hat. So, Well, next comes an interesting one. Next, we have Prince Albert Victor Christian Edward. This is called The Royal Conspiracy. I know. <laughs> they say uh, two first names is bad. What about four first names? So pretty, pretty crazy. Um, Prince, should we call him Prince Albert or Prince Edward? First name or last name? I, I think Albert would All right, be. He's going to be Prince Albert for our purposes. He was known to frequent areas where the victims were found. And this was an activity that led him to contracting syphilis, which some believe drove him to insanity. Some say he had a child with a local woman, and Queen Victoria said that anyone who knew about the child must be taken care of. So, uh, some think the insanity spawned by syphilis drove him to commit the murders himself. And conspiracy theorists believe he was never discovered because royal aides assisted in covering his identity. This theory is mostly regarded as uh, ludicrous because there is no substantial evidence to indicate its credibility. 
Well, I think there's one. Yeah, he, uh, his brother was King Edward the Seventh, so he would have been Queen Victoria's son, maybe grandson. But uh, I think there's a simple way to do this. We get the scarf, we get the DNA, and um, you know we haul uh, we haul Prince Charles in for a DNA test. We can settle this idea. thing right away. Yes, so let's do it. Bring him out. Uh, next, we have Walter Sickert. He was a famed painter and successful crime novelist Patricia Cornwall posed this theory. She, After she made a bunch of money with her novels, she has now decided that her life's work will be devoted to proving that Sickert is Jack, was Jack the Ripper. In 2001, Cornwall spent two million pounds buying 32 of Sickert's paintings, letters, and his writing desk in a stunt described by art curator Richard Schoen as monstrous stupidity. So I guess it was stupid that she did that. Um, Cornwall rightfully claims that Sickert was obsessed with the Ripper. So he really was. He cosplayed as Jack the Ripper in the 1880s before like, there was a word for cosplay. So he liked to dress up as Jack the Ripper. Um, Sickert referenced Ripper in some of his paintings, even titling one Jack the Ripper's Bedroom. Cornwall shoots down the notion that Sickert was in France at the onset of the murders. She cites sketches that place him in London in music halls at the time of at least three killings. I don't understand how that's proof, by the way. I don't think it is. Uh, yeah, it makes no sense. I feel like I could sketch something here and say I did it at home and... Yes, we, we lawyers would call that circumstantial evidence. Yeah, pretty weak circumstantial evidence. Uh, Cornwall's best piece of evidence, though, she does have a pretty compelling piece of evidence, um, is from the analysis of forensic paper expert Peter Bauer. Bauer identified three of Sickert's letters and two of the Ripper's letters as coming from a handmade paper run of only 24 possible sheets. So his sheets and the Ripper's sheets were from this batch of 24 papers so uh but we need to remember we don't know that jack the ripper himself wrote the letters some people think other and anyone could have written those um second to last we have joseph barnett he lived with mary kelly the final victim he may have lived in 10 different locations in East London, making him well-versed in the area and capable of navigating back streets. Barnett worked as a fish porter, and it was believed that he was in love with Mary Kelly. He, disag uh, he disagreed with her life as a sex worker and strived to make money to keep her, make enough money to keep her off the streets. Some believe that Barnett committed the first murders to scare her off the streets, which did work, but then he lost his job, so she had to make ends meet since they were roommates, and so she had to go back to doing that. Well, that's true love, isn't it? I'm going to yes. go out and kill four people just to save you from the streets. Okay. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. So nice. Jacob, are you listening? <laughs> Don't do that, Jacob. <laughs> Their financial struggles often led to fights, and Barnett disliked Kelly's love of gin. This accumulated in one final fight in which Kelly brought home two other sex workers, and Joseph found this unacceptable. This fight became violent, and a window was even broken, probably by a rock being thrown through it. Shortly after, Barnett moved out, and only 10 days later, Mary was found dead in her apartment. And this is compelling because 
she was found dead in a way that looked like, you know, she wasn't surprised that someone was in her room. Her, uh, her clothes for the day had been taken off like normal and she was in her pajamas. Um, and Barnett was questioned for four hours by police, but was set free. She was the only victim who was actually killed in her home. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of them were found, you know, on a street. So mm-hmm. uh, this this broke the um, this broke the modus operandi of the killer up to that point. So right. that it's interesting. And because he was Mary's close friend, other sex workers would have known him. So he would have known where they were and could have made sneak attacks to kill them. Oh, and lastly, a newspaper said that his friends called him Jack, and he matched the physical description. And one more thing, the murders allegedly stopped after Mary Kelly, and because he finally got her off the streets, he wouldn't have to kill anymore. The last one, James Maybrick, he is the, uh, what do they call it, ripperologists, the people yes. who love this case yes. a lot. Um, they like have blogs and stuff. Uh, This is their favorite suspect. So James Maybrick. He died one year after the murders. He was an upper-class cotton merchant who resided in the Battle Crease House in Liverpool. This is like a big estate. Uh, Many people think that Ripper wasn't upper-class, but all of the murders happened on a weekend or around a weekend, and a wealthy cotton merchant would have had the ability to travel on the weekends. So because we live in the U.S., a lot of us probably don't know that Liverpool is not anywhere close to London. So he definitely had, I didn't know that. He definitely had to travel pretty far to get to East London from Liverpool. And because he was rich, he could have done that. His diary was discovered under the floorboards of his estate. And a page in the diary says, I give my name that all know of me. So history do tell what love can do to a gentleman born, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. There are intimate details of the killings in the diary, and scientific tests confirm the diary roughly matches the era of the killings. Uh, Mark Barrett, a scrap metal dealer, discovered the diary. He said that he, he, he said that he fabricated the diary, but then he took this back later because he didn't want the publicity because he was going through, like, uh, marital issues. So he said it and he's like, never mind. I don't want to be famous. So I didn't really say that. So this is where everything gets weird. Um, we also don't know how he discovered the diary. Like some say it was passed down. Some think that he found it under the floorboards. I don't know. It's weird. And, um, a gold pocket watch was reported as a potential ripper piece of evidence um it has all five victims initials scratched into it and it also has i am jack and jay maybrick scratched into it analysis of the scratches suggests that they were not done in modern times given the uncertainty around the diary and maybrick's far location from the crimes some doubt that maybrick was indeed the ripper well, I have a favorite suspect. Do you? Well, there is one other. How how many of you have ever read Alice in Wonderland? Lewis Lewis Carroll, that that wonderful author. Uh, some people thought he did it on on what uh, they believe is very very strong evidence. Uh, he was depressed, and uh, up until the time of the murders, he wrote everything in blue ink. But then after the murders occurred, he started writing in black ink. Yeah, I, I, I think that's just, yeah. That's it, yes. It's, 
It's Lewis Carroll, so you'll never read Alice in Wonderland in the same way again. It's pretty but good. But you were saying, <laughs> I digress. I was saying, I have a favorite suspect. Do you have a favorite suspect? By favorite, I mean, I, I think I, I have an opinion who did it, who was Jack the Ripper. Mm. How about you? Well, I started off thinking it was Mr. Kaminsky, but I have probably come around to... Um, Barnett? Oh, yes, Mary Kelly's friend. That, That's who that I That does think. seem to be... That seems to make the most sense. If, if it is one of these suspects, I, that seems to me to make the most sense. I agree. All right, we want you guys to vote. I think we can narrow it down for everyone. Someone tell me if I'm wrong. But I think we can narrow it down to Kosminski as to represent the official suspects. Then, I don't know, we could do Prince Albert for fun, unless someone really thinks it was him. I don't mean to judge. Uh, definitely Barnett and Maybrick. Is there anyone else that you think should be included? What about the non-human, non-corporeal entity beamed into outer oh, space? right, right, right. No. Um, <laughs> all right, we're going to go with those four. I didn't hear any objections. Raise your hand if you think it was Kosminski with the shawl and the, you know, the blood on the shawl. Two? Three? Oh, three, four? Okay, we got four <laughs> guesses. <laughs> Next, we have Prince... Albert, uh, Prince Albert, something, something, something. Don. Okay. We have Don, our editor, guessing that one. Okay. Next, we have Barnett. Oh, yeah. Like everyone. Just kidding. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. We'll say twenty. All right. <laughs> and lastly, James Maybrick. No one? The wealthy cotton merchant. All right, Don again. <laughs> and Emily. All right, we got three. Three for Maybrick. Well, I think we've reached a consensus. I, it, Barnett did it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, right. and hopefully his, his descendants aren't going to come through the door serving us with a lawsuit for defamation at, at this time. If they did, you all caught the last show ever. Just kidding. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you all for, for listening. Uh, this was so much fun having an audience. Uh, before we go, though, I have our winners. Miss Vanna White, I mean, Jacob Burkett delivered our winners. Okay, let me see. All right. Emily Fish, my good friend since forever, has won. And the, the screamer, one of the screamers, oh, yes. by the way. <laughs> and then we have John Wolven. Woohoo! And then we have Andy S Andy Simmons. Simmons. All right. If you guys want to come up, um, here are the prizes. So come on up and get get what you'd like. Oh, I should read the correct answers. And by the way, you better run because it's first come, first serve. There's only three. <laughs> um, Molly was dressed in 1920s apparel. Abby was 1960s. Kara was the 70s, and Tyrika was the 90s. 
All right. Congratulations to everyone who got any of them, right? And thank you for participating. Well, Macy, don't you? Don't we have some thank yous to pass around we very quickly before we go? A few thank yous before we go. So our show would not even be here if it weren't for my lovely mother, Lori Norland. Yes. <laughs> thank you, Mom. She helps us behind the scenes, and she's amazing. Um, and of course, our editor, Don Bailey here, of, of Pretend Machine in Lawrence, Kansas. Don helps us more than he needs to, and he's amazing, and we love him. So, uh, so he much. does all the hard work back here. Uh, and we have the owners of the bar. We have Tara, Scott, and Ian. Thank you for having us. Amazing. And of course, our lovely models, Molly, Abby, Kara, and Tyreek. Yes, oh, they're going to do, they're gonna do <laughs> one more run on through. Mo Molly's models, come on out. <laughs> Thank you, guys. All right, well, thank you again for, for coming out and watching our very first live show. So, And be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have a Facebook group. Cocktails with Crime and Fashion VIP. It's free, and you get to see videos every week of this guy making cocktails. Uh, we're on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion, and we have a Twitter, but I do not use it, so just don't even go there. <laughs> Thank you very much. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquin for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. 